Just kidding. Hey guys, and welcome to the first ever episode of Undead Airlock, a weekly podcast devoted to the discussion of the horror genre in some of its many wonderful forms. I'm your host, Hannah Selector, and I'm looking forward to not only figuring out this whole podcast thing, but, you know, getting to know a whole new batch of spooky stuff-loving friends. That's you guys! I'm excited and nervous to get started. Alright, so we're like... 30 seconds in at this point, and you may be asking yourself some questions. Questions like, where did I go wrong in life? Why am I awake right now? What possessed me to listen to this nameless, unknown podcast? Who is this internet voice, and why does it want to yang at me about horror? Well, the voice belongs to me, Hannah. Hello again. And, you know, as the host pseudonym and the podcast name might suggest, I like puns. Um, I'm in my late 20s, I grew up in the Midwest, and currently live in the American South, somewhere in North Carolina, to be not specific. By day, I work in the legal field and teach violin lessons, and by night, I write fiction and consume horror media like it's my job. And hot dang do I wish it was my job. Half of my degree is in literature, and I've always enjoyed reading and writing, but I've always loved those things more when the subject matter is frightening or creepy or unsettling. Now, all of this introduction is not to say I'm any more qualified than any other person to host a podcast about horror. But hey, here's the difference. I am hosting a podcast about horror, and those other guys aren't. So you might as well listen, right? Let's see. Um, I've loved horror for as long as I can remember, since before I first read The Green Ribbon. You guys know that story, right, with the lady and the choker necklace from In a Dark, Dark Room? It was one of those learn-to-read books, but I can't imagine it worked that well, since it probably scared the ever-loving shit out of any kid who opened it. Somehow I persevered, though, and I still managed to learn to read. From then on, horror was my one true love, with a little bit of sci-fi on the side. And that love... passion? Obsession? Love? Whatever you want to call it runs super deep. And once the people in my immediate family got super tired of hearing me go on and on and on about all that creepy nonsense, which horror movie I was watching, which story I had just finished reading, what video game I was currently playing, what comic had just come out, etc. And all of my friends insisted that they would really, really rather talk about something else, I decided I needed an outlet. My little brothers have always told me that I've got a great face for radio, so I decided to start this podcast. Say hello to the outlet. I hope some of you like-minded horror lovers are going to enjoy it. How many times have I said shit so far? Sorry, Mom. Um, but enough about me. More importantly, you're probably wondering what you can expect from this podcast, right? Well, the goal here, stated tentatively and subject to change, is to explore, recommend, critique, discuss stories and books, comics, films, TV series, and video games, primarily in the horror genre. But hey, there's always a little wiggle room for sci-fi, right? Hopefully you guys will allow it. I mean, come on, they're always crossing over each other. They love each other. Let them play together. What's scarier than New Frontiers and Fringe Science, right? 
Besides, I'm the host. If I gotta spend most of my free time editing the sounds of my own voice and heavy breathing, then I gotta be able to do stuff like that from time to time, right? Right. Thanks, guys. You're the greatest. Sounds pretty fun, right? A bit unpolished, maybe, but pretty good. The hope is that the wide variety of subject material and, let's be honest, the sheer volume and diversity of horror media is gonna give us lots to enjoy and learn more about together. Types of shows we've already outlined for production include stuff like brief horror histories, looks into the origins of genre tropes, creature features, top and not top ten lists, creator interviews, artist interviews, guest hosts, listener-led features, and ask the host featurettes. Tons of stuff. Lots of ground to cover. And more than enough horror to keep you listening even once the month of October is over. For this first show... Let's keep with our theme of introductions, because I'm going to take a minute to wax academic and talk about the origins of the genre of horror as we know it today. Horror's been around for as long as history's been recorded. I mean, even longer than that. Monsters like vampires, werewolves, and even aliens are present in ancient texts, albeit in earlier and much less familiar to us kind of forms. Frightening natural disasters, stories of huge plagues or floods, human transformation and monstrous births, all sorts of creatures from Afrits, which are Arabic spirits of fire, to things like the Yale, which is a giant furry black creature with rotating horns that Pliny wrote about in his Natural Histories. I mean, these horrors and monsters are scattered throughout ancient history and mythology, and you don't even have to look that hard. Fairy tales and folk tales were written and passed down to frighten us into safety and obedience, and pretty much every instance throughout history of something that nobody could explain, or something frightening, was almost instantly blamed on the supernatural, the monstrous. Sea monsters, dragons, witches, succubi, demons. They're woven all throughout history, like yarn through a millennia-long scarf. Now, we also have to thank misguided religious zeal, awful though it is for being responsible for the creation of many of our earliest horror features. Like, the church's obsession with witches and heretics and demonic possession. I mean, that's led to the creation of some of the most truly excellent horror stories in history. The Catholic Church's terrible misdeeds and the awful torture that took place at their hands has lent inspiration to some of the greatest horror stories that have ever been told. I mean, I can think of nothing more horrific than the Spanish Inquisition unexpected though it may be. And you can thank the clerics of medieval France for a lot of our modern werewolf lore. Who knew? Many of our earliest horror stories, and indeed much of our earliest literature, is pretty religious in nature. Spurred on, again, by the church's obsession with witchcraft and evil and demons. Works like Dante's Divine Comedy spawned some of the most iconic imagery of Satan, and I mean... That work in particular was pretty influential on the genre. By the time of the late 16th century, many horror elements were becoming common in the dramatic sphere, on stage and in plays. Gruesome deaths and murders were performed on stage to terrified audiences. Notably, Dr. Faustus was first performed in 1592, putting demons and Satan himself at center stage. Pun very much intended. Literature is again the one to push horror forward with the arrival of the Gothic novel in the early 1700s, the first of which would be The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole. 
Now, that's followed almost a century later by what is often considered the most iconic of Gothic novels, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Literature nerds, please don't at me. I'm more than well aware of the debate about whether this is a Gothic novel or a romantic novel or a blending of both. Let's be friends and avoid the discussion altogether, shall we? Okay, now I take that back. If you want to talk about it, DM me. Get at me an email, whatever. Well, the written world only continues to deliver with tales from Dr. Polidori, Edgar Allan Poe, Lord Byron, Washington Irving, and tons more. Not to mention a resurgence of frightening theater with plays like The Castle Spectre or The Vampire. By the time of the 19th century, horror had permeated pretty much every available genre of expression. Francisco Goyo was painting terrifying frescoes in response to the real-life terror of war. Composers were penning classic pieces like Dance Macabre, songs like Paganini's Witch's Dance, March to the Scaffold by Berlioz, or The Devil's Troll Sonata by Tartini. All of these songs, of course, are worth a listen, but you might especially recognize Dance Macabre from the little lick at the beginning of our show. Now, while modern parents probably won't be keen on reading the original versions of them, the Brothers Grimm were also busy at this time producing some of the most frightening and disturbing children's stories ever written. Then comes the Industrial Revolution, where there was a sharp rise in literacy, and horror became accessible to a much larger audience. An audience that's not composed of only the ranked or the privileged, but the everyday working man. And now we have Penny Dreadfuls, which were available, to no one's surprise, for a penny. They featured scandalizing stories of bloody violence, murder, and monsters. And plays of a similar nature called Penny Gaffs were also really popular now. An early precursor to those uh, skimpy and violent B-horror movies that we love so much. Now, as people's access to media keeps broadening and changing, so does horror. It's influenced more extremely now by the gruesomeness of humanity itself, which the public could read about, because it was literate now, and because circulars like newspapers and magazines were all the more common. Serial killers, horrific accidents, disasters, and bloody gore in general become a much more common horror feature at this time. By the end of the 19th century, gory plays called Grand Guignols were popular on the French stage. And soon, marginally less upsetting versions were being staged in slightly more proper England. Now, with the approach of the 1900s, horror would be defined not just by the attention to modernity, but also by speculation of what the future might bring, when authors like H.G. Wells began to blend science fiction more often into their frightening stories. This relatively new and innovative way of frightening audiences was built on the foundation already laid by the late great Mary Shelley. By now... Horror stories are pretty frequently being serialized in magazines, and short fiction becomes the favored method for telling scary stories. Later, with the dawn of the 20th century, film and radio finally come onto the scene as key players in the horror genre. Scary radio shows even paved the way for some early and successful horror comics. Most of the earliest horror films were adaptations of horror literature. Selig Polyscope produced Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1908, or you could look at Edison Studios' version of Frankenstein. These films continued throughout the 1920s, almost exclusively based on already written horror fiction. Now, the term horror is not used to describe these films until about 1930, which is the time when Universal Studios begins premiering their famous monster flicks. Movies like James Whale's Frankenstein or The Invisible Man keep on showcasing that perfect union of horror and science fiction. And a lot of our beloved horror film imagery gets notable during this time. 
Christopher Lee solidifies the image of the fanged vampire, and Boris Karloff's face becomes almost synonymous with Frankenstein's monster. The mid-20th century brings the films of Alfred Hitchcock and George Romero, and with Romero comes the absolutely iconic zombie imagery of Night of the Living Dead. Like the authors in the late 1900s, filmmakers of the mid-20th century, like George Romero, Roman Polanski, and Alfred Hitchcock, free horror film from the shackles of gothic tradition, and allow the genre to break into this new and more modern territory an era that combines psychological or social issues with scary images to create more effective scares. This is the golden age of horror film, and tons of well-known tropes begin to emerge. Evil children, demonic pregnancies, uh, the portal to hell, slashers, grief psychosis, pagan rituals, and more, all make their first appearances on screen during this time. By the 1980s, all sorts of new technological possibilities for effects abound. There's a marked turn for horror films at this time, and lots of movies start to focus on gore for the sake of gore, shunning story for splatters and gross-out effects. Now, along with all of this change comes an unfortunate downturn in public opinion of horror films in general. Now, I can't say I entirely blame society, friendly aside to my listeners. Any horror stuff that veers into the territory of what I would unaffectionately call gore porn is probably going to get a skip from me. Now come on, this is not to say I don't enjoy stuff with gore, or that gore doesn't have its place in horror, because it absolutely does. It's an integral part of the genre. What I'm saying is that if something is disgusting simply for the sake of being disgusting, means that it's not effective, and it's not good horror. Elizabeth Barrett wrote in an essay called Elements of Aversion, Sometimes a story intends to shock and disgust but the best horror intends to rattle our cages and shake us out of our complacency. It makes us think. It forces us to confront ideas that we might rather ignore and challenge preconceptions of all kinds. Horror reminds us that the world is not always as safe as it seems. Horror reminds us to keep a little healthy caution at hand. Well said, Elizabeth. And hey, the 1980s weren't all bad. In 1981, Monster Maze, a game widely regarded as the first ever horror video game is released for the computer. It would be followed slowly but surely by classics like Sweet Home, Alone in the Dark, and by 1996, Resident Evil, the first video game ever to be classified as survival horror. Survival horror nowadays is a fixture of modern horror gaming, among numerous other subgenres. Oh hey guys, I've got a riddle for you. What has two thumbs is currently recording a podcast and can't wait to get her hands on the evil within two. Yeah, it's me. Horror continues to be a global phenomenon now. Books, comics, television, movies, video games, virtual reality experiences, haunted houses, escape rooms, we've got everything. There's action horror, body horror, holiday horror, psychological, dramatic, action, supernatural horror, uh, teen horror, found footage, splatter and slasher horror, zombies and vampires and werewolves. Oh my! But I mean, no matter how you're interacting with horror, no matter what type of horror media it is, whether you're in this for a quick scare or to throw a spooky lens over the problems of society, you guys are the winners. You horror fans are the winners. In loving horror, you're willingly confronting ideas and images and, let's face it, monsters that lots of people are trying to ignore or are too scared to acknowledge. You guys are the coolest, and I am so jazzed that you love horror, and I'm excited to keep on loving it with you, all year round, and not just for the month of October. 
Whew, did you guys feel that? That was absolutely beautiful. I feel like we're, like, totally connecting now. All right, there you have it. A brief introduction to horror. But hey, since we're also getting to know each other this episode, I think I'm also going to do the first bit of something I've been subjecting my friends and family to on my personal social media for years. Recommending 31 horror movies to watch over the 31 days of October. Or, you know, as quickly as possible during the first few days of October. It's your life. You do you. Alright, since this is going to be a weekly podcast, you guys are going to get the first seven recommendations all in one go. Back in my Facebook days, people only got one at a time, so this is a real treat. Oh, and since we're getting to know one another, seems like it might be fun to give you guys a chance to make some assumptions about me and have the first seven movie recommendations be personal favorites of mine. I mean, what does the internet love more than judging people, right? Are these my top seven favorite films of all time? Maybe. Not exactly. Okay, probably not entirely. As soon as I start editing this recording, I'm sure I'm going to think of another one to add, or one that might have been better to mention, a title that would have made me seem cooler for saying it, but damn it, these movies are up there. I love them. All right, here we go, in no particular order. Number one, Insidious. You guys. Okay, let's just go ahead and get this out of the way early. I love, love, love the Insidious franchise. And I'm already cheating on my movie list because when I'm talking right now, I'm not just telling you to watch the first Insidious movie, I'm pretty much telling you to watch all three of them. Whatever, it's my podcast, my movie list, fight me. Okay, just kidding, don't fight me, I would probably cry. Anyway, Insidious, the first one, came out in 2010, written by Lee Wan-El and directed by James Wan. Yes, James Wan of Saw fame, for which I will slightly forgive him just because of this franchise. Insidious is a supernatural horror flick. It centers around a family whose son falls into a coma after a tumble from a ladder, a coma that cannot be explained or fixed by doctors. So, after they move to a new house for a fresh start and start seeing some crazy nonsense in their kid's room, the parents call upon and I am repressing a serious fangirl scream right now, a team of demonologists led by clairvoyant Elise Rainier. As they investigate, things start to escalate and shit continues to go down. Shit. I said shit. Sorry, Mom. Sorry. I don't know why I keep apologizing to my mom. I doubt she's going to listen to this podcast. Anyway, as with lots of horror movies, the critical response to Insidious is mixed. But who cares what the critics say? Here's what I say. This franchise is solid on frights deeper than jump scares or gore. Its greatest asset is that it prods uncomfortably at our fears of what comes next. The permanency, or lack thereof, of death, and that super thin line that separates us from those who are no longer alive. The cinematography is lovely, it's foreboding, it's elegant, the atmosphere is top-notch creepy, And hey, the musical cues are going to warm your cold, dead, horror-loving heart because they are super reminiscent of old-school Vincent Price-era horror. Oh, and the casting's pretty damn great. Here's the rub, though. The first Insidious movie is actually my least favorite of the bunch. The strength of these stories, in my opinion, lies in the exploration of the further, which is this creepy liminal space between the realms of the dead and the living that gets explored in more depth in the later movies. The Further is, like, one of my favorite horror movie concepts ever. It sticks with you. It's this lovely, strange, frightening, and beautiful all-at-once sort of idea. It carries through all of the Insidious films, and it's built upon and fleshed out with each new movie. And hot dang is it marvelous. But best of all, 
you're going to fall in love with these characters like no other horror franchise I've ever watched. I mean, Elise and her team are the bright stars of these movies. They're lovable, they're sweet, they're smart, they're perfect. Lynn Shay is Elise is an icon. She's a badass, the queen, and I love her so much. I will watch any scary movie with Lynn Shay in it, but I will especially watch the Insidious movies. All right, so you guys, watch Insidious. Watch Insidious Chapter 2. Watch Insidious Chapter 3. And get hype for Insidious The Last Key, which is coming out early next year. Movie number two, Mama. This movie is just gorgeous. Argentinian siblings Barbara and Andy Muschietti are the writing and directing team behind this gem, produced by Guillermo del Toro. Barbara and Andy also recently blessed us with that 2017 adaptation of Stephen King's It. Quite a duo, doing good work for this genre, so let's support their work. Mama was based on Muschietti's three-minute short film, by the same name, which attracted Guillermo del Toro, who stated that it had the, quote, scariest scenes he had ever seen, end quote. The short convinced del Toro to executive produce the feature-length film. The story begins with young sisters Victoria, who is three, and Lily, who's just a teeny tiny one-year-old, who, after a series of frightening and unfortunate circumstances, find themselves alone and orphaned in the woods, living in an abandoned cabin and cared for by a mysterious presence they refer to only as Mama. After five years being cared for by Mama, a rescue party, which we find out is sponsored by Victoria and Lily's uncle Lucas, finds the girls alive, but in a feral state, after years of isolation. The girls are put in a welfare clinic and under the care of a psychiatrist who may or may not have their best interests in mind. The girls don't really talk, but they make constant reference to Mama, some sort of maternal protective figure. When Lucas travels to the hospital to meet the girls, they're initially hostile, but Victoria recognizes her uncle instantly after she gets a pair of glasses. The clinic agrees to support Lucas and his girlfriend Annabelle's custody claim over the girl's maternal great-aunt and rich bitch, Jean. You suck, Aunt Jean. Victoria acclimates quickly to domestic life, and Lily continues to maintain her wildness. Language regression, growling, lying on the floor, you know, all that standard creepy kiddo stuff. And just as Lily clings to their former life in the woods, will the mysterious mama release her hold on these little girls? With Guillermo del Toro's name attached to this movie, you can expect that Mama's going to deliver that rich fairy tale imagery and hauntingly beautiful visuals. The casting is strong and the young girls especially shine. Also, shout out to Javier Botet, who continues to be one of the greatest and chronically unsung actors in horror. Right up there with my boy Doug Jones. Keep an eye out for familiar and beloved horror imagery like creeping black smoke, disembodied whispers, flickering lights, all familiar but still effective in the Muschietti's artful hands. Number three, Digging Up the Marrow. This is one that some of you may not have heard of, but you've probably heard of its writer-slash-director, Adam Green. You know, the guy of Hatchet franchise and Holliston fame? Adam's been a known player in the horror genre for a while. Now, acting as a fictionalized version of himself in this found-footage-style flick, Adam sets out to document the meaning of monsters and monstrosity in the lives of those that he works with in the horror industry. As he films interviews with horror community pillars, and he really does this, you'll see Don Brocky, a.k.a. Odorous Arungus of Guar fame, Don Cascarelli, and Tom Holland, to name just a few, Adam is contacted by William Decker, a local man who claims to have proof of the existence of real flesh-and-blood monsters. 
Adam's taken in by Decker's initial accounts of his own childhood encounters with monsters on the edge of this underground world that Decker calls the Marrow. Captivated by these stories and reassured by Decker's reputation as a retired police officer, Green decides to shift the focus of his documentary to Decker's experiences and assertions about the Marrow rather than simply monsters. And he does this despite the skepticism and protests of his long-suffering cameraman, Will. You guys, Will is such a star, he needs to be protected at all costs. As the two-man crew continues to film this documentary, Decker reveals sketches, newspaper accounts, and disturbing stories of the monsters that he's encountered, and even lets slip a brief hint about the mysterious disappearance of his own son. Adam and Will are led closer and closer to the marrow, determined to capture footage of a real monster. But Decker's facade of trustworthiness is starting to unravel, leaving Adam to wonder whether he's been duped by the sad rantings of a disturbed madman, or whether he stumbled on the greatest, most monstrous discovery of his life. With enjoyable tongue-in-cheek meta and references to the culture of the modern horror genre, Digging Up the Marrow delivers solid chills nonetheless by touching on those universal sentiments about the unknown and the unknowable that lurks all around us. Ray Wise is a creepy delight as William Decker, and even Adam Green, who claims to be more comfortable behind the camera, charms as an over-eager, satirical reimagining of himself. Film number four, Repo, the genetic opera. You ever had a car that was threatened with repossession or, like, a house go into foreclosure? I mean, I hope not. How traumatic would that be? What if we lived in a world where not only might our houses and property be reclaimed for non-payment, but also our organs? This is the nightmare world that Repo explores. And it does it in song! What could be better? Repo the Genetic Opera is a 2008 American musical horror film directed by Darren Lynn Bozeman, based on the 2002 musical of the same name, which was written and composed by Darren Smith and Terence Zadunich. After years of being performed on stage, Repo's adapted into a 10-minute short film directed and financed by Bozeman to pitch to film studios. It gets picked up by Lionsgate and starts filming in 2007. Interesting aside about this musical soundtrack, if you're a J-pop fan, ex-Japan member Yoshiki Hayashi along with composing one extra track for the film, actually produced the soundtrack. He's also one of the film's producers. Okay, so there are some big names to notice in the cast here. Sarah Brightman, Alexa Vega, Paul Sorvino, and, believe it or not, Paris Hilton. Repo opens in a cemetery during the turbulent 21st century, which is an era marked by an epidemic of organ failures, and it precipitates the rise of massive corporation GeneCo. Now, GeneCo provides the organs necessary to keep the rich alive and the poor in this ever-increasing state of debt and despair. Failure to pay in full for the life-giving organs GeneCo provides means that you risk a visit from the corporation's brutal mercenaries, repo men, who will stop at nothing to repossess the organs in question, often callously murdering the suffering indebted in the process. Drugs and murder run rampant in this alternate future, and when a sheltered teenager seeks to unravel the mystery of her own illness and her father's role in the frightening society around her, her life will never be the same. All answers lie waiting beneath the bright lights of the famous genetic opera. Full disclosure, listeners, Repo is not for everyone. It's probably a little overambitious, both visually and musically. But what Bozeman did manage to pull off here in making Repo was finding a cast who was willing to come together and try to do justice to this idea. The recognizable actors and actresses do a great job, but it's the newbies and unknowns that bring the greatest performances, 
Zdunich himself is one of the strongest performers in the film as the unnamed grave robber. The biggest surprise of all, though, is probably Paris Hilton, who performs on par with the professional actors and actresses around her. Now, even though Repo isn't for everyone, there's a bunch of horror fans and musical fans who are going to find Repo to be an invigorating, fun time. Repo's got a cult following that's been compared to the likes of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Costume fans have packed theaters and roadshows to support the movie. It may not be a film for all audiences, viewer beware, lots of instances of graphic violence, but overall it's a colorful, campy, and intriguing horror movie worth a viewing. Or ten. Despite its flaws, it's an affectionate favorite of mine, so I think it's still worth a watch. Hell of a fun, flamboyant, and gory good time to be had. Number five, Absentia. I gotta say, Absentia is a selector household favorite. I saw this movie on Netflix and figured it was something to watch just for the sake of having something new to watch, but I was just transfixed by it. Absentia was made in 2011. It's an indie horror flick. In fact, most of the film's principal photography phase was funded by a crowdfunding website, Kickstarter. Courtney Bell stars as pregnant Trisha, a woman whose husband has been missing for over seven years. After such a long time, she is finally ready to accept that her missing husband's not coming back, so she gets ready to declare him dead in absentia. Her sister Callie, who's a former addict, comes to stay with her, and together they get to work on obtaining a death certificate and helping Trisha move on with her life. As the date of Daniel's official in absentia death declaration approach, Trisha starts having these weird nightmares, hallucinations, and a psychiatrist interprets this as stress or guilt. Meanwhile, her sister is having troubles of her own. Callie goes out jogging one day, runs into this gaunt man in a tunnel who is totally shocked that she can see him, which, as horror fans, we know is never a good sign. He introduces himself as Walter Lambert and begs her to contact his son, but she runs off. Later, feeling a little guilty, she comes back with food to look for the guy, but when she can't find him, leaves the food in the tunnel, which she sees is empty. But that's not all, of course. Absentia is moody and creepy, a brilliant meditation on grief and loss. The film won, like, a ton of awards, and look out for Doug Jones in the cast, who is amazing as always. You will never look at a creepy tunnel the same way ever again. Film the sixth, Pontypool. Oh, Canada. Shout out to my family up in the Great White North, and major thanks to America's Hat for blessing us with this fab piece of film. Pontypool is a 2008 Canadian horror movie directed by Bruce McDonald and written by Tony Burgess. Tony Burgess based the script on his novel, Pontypool Changes Everything, which is absolutely worth a read. In the small town of Pontypool, Ontario, former shock jock turned radio announcer Grant is going through a blizzard on his way to work. Now, on his commute, there's a lot of weird stuff going down, including this lady who gets his attention by putting her hand into his car window at a stoplight and murmuring the word blood over and over. As soon as she's done muttering, she staggers back off into the storm like a nutcase. Grant arrives at work, and typical of his antisocial personality, starts immediately rubbing his co-workers the wrong way. The morning seems to be going on normally until they get a call from their helicopter reporter, Ken, about some sort of riot. Grant's happy for the breakup of his boring morning show, but it soon becomes clear that this is no ordinary riot. Ken gets cut off, the group tries to confirm his report, but all the witnesses are disconnected before they can get them on the radio. When Ken calls back, he says that he's taken refuge in an abandoned building, he's describing complete mayhem. 
people eating each other and tearing each other apart. All is not well in Pontypool. When one of these crazed riot-goers crashes into the silo where Ken is hiding, Ken's call gets interrupted by a mysterious transmission completely in French. One of the radio employees translates the transmission, which is an instruction to stay indoors, not to use terms of endearment, to cease all baby talk and rhetorical discourse, and to completely stop speaking English. Pontypool is declared to be under quarantine. So, without giving too much away, as a word lover who also loves horror movies, this movie scratched every single itch. Stephen McHattie steals the show as Grant, just this lovable, gruff, cranky cuss of a guy. This is not your standard zombie movie. It was phenomenal, pleasing, a gripping ride, and I will never stop recommending this movie. And finally, movie number seven, World War Z. That's right, I said it, call me a sellout, whatever, but sometimes you just want that A-list, high-production, value, mile-a-minute, zombie-fighting goodness that only a blockbuster can give you. So there, fight me. Again, please do not. World War Z came out in 2013. It's an American action horror film directed by Mark Forster. Screenplay is based on a 2006 book by the same name, written by Max Brooks. But if you've read the novel, viewer beware, the movie pretty much shares nothing with it except the title. The film stars Brad Pitt as Jerry Lane, a former United Nations investigator who has to travel the world to find a way to stop a zombie pandemic. When the movie begins, Jerry's given up his fast-paced life of world travel to settle into a routine with his wife and two kids. However, Jerry's hopes of normalcy are soon completely shattered. After catching snippets of a disturbing news report on a virus outbreak over breakfast, the family gets stopped in traffic near their home and watches in horror as people begin to smash car windows with their own faces and violently attack anybody in sight. Jerry quickly realizes the gravity of the situation. He witnesses a bite from one crazed individual spread an infection in mere seconds, transforming its human host into a mindless beast bent on propagating the disease. The United Nations reaches out to Jerry for his expertise, and he's forced to leave his family behind to undertake a worldwide quest to discover the source and behavior of a terrifying new virus, finding a way to stop its deadly march across the globe. The music for this movie is fabulous, too, featuring the talents of Marco Beltrami, British rock band Muse, and electronic band Nero. Brad Pitt, zombies, a rockin' lady, Israeli soldier, and pretty well-thought story. You can't ask for much else from a horror thriller. Action-packed and visually stunning, World War Z delivers at every turn, and even after two hours, I totally wanted to watch it again. So, hell, I've seen it like five times. Whew! Well, I guess that brings us pretty much to the end. For now. I hope all of you guys are going to help me make this the best podcast it can possibly be and connect with me. Do you have a particular work you want me to explore? Video game you'd like me to try? Favorite movie you think I'd enjoy? A feature of horror you want to learn more about? Send me an email or find me on Twitter and let me know how I can keep you listening and happily horrified. You can reach me by email at hannahselector, that's H-A-N-N-A-H, S-E-L-E-C-T-O-R at gmail.com or on Twitter at Hannah Selector. And who boy, bear with me on this Twitter thing. I am super not good at it. Now, a la every podcast host ever, here's me telling you to please rate, review, and subscribe. We're SoundCloud only as I speak, but by next episode, and in fact, hopefully as early as tomorrow, we should be up and running on iTunes. Thanks for listening today. 
And we're going to try something fun with the sign-off. Every week, I will bid you farewell by quoting one of those pivotal lines from a horror movie, a book, a game, something. You know that one line that tells you how you can win, how you can kill the monster. Once in a while, a guest may even lend us their vocal talents for a special sign-off. If you recognize it, hit me up on Twitter and let me know you figured it out. And just a couple shout-outs before I actually go. Thanks to Brad Hall for helping out with sound engineering and procuring our microphone. And thanks to Jason Wright, our special guest for our sign-off today. All right. Is not understanding what disinfects it? See, that's the question. If it disinfects it, then how? Without distorting, how do you do that? You kill the word that's killing you. Until next time, everybody.